Our scripture reading today comes from John 1st, 19 through 29. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, everyone. I am so excited to be sharing the word with you today. Before we get started, we may not know one another really well, so I just want to kind of use a few minutes to introduce myself. I want to start by just sharing I'm a small-town girl, not living in a lonely world. In case your brain made the jump to the Journey song, um, it just sometimes happens like that. I actually grew up in a very big, extended family. I am one of 12 children. I am the firstborn of two sets of multiples. And I also um, grew up really heavily involved in my church. Now, there's something you should know about my church growing up. 45% um, of the congregation shared the same last name as me or my mother. Um, so if you were a Fleming or you were a Lowry, you attended this church. You were married in this church. You were baptized in this church. My parents um, were married in this church. My aunts were married in this church. My uncles were married in this church. I was baptized in this church. Many of my nieces and nephews since then have been baptized. This is our church. And when I wasn't attending church, I was a big athlete. Thanks to my dad who wanted to be a coach. I played volleyball and basketball and softball. And thanks to sports and my dad pushing me, I accepted a college scholarship, um, which neither my parents nor my grandparents had gone to college. And I played volleyball and basketball for four years. Um, and then I met someone. Now, my husband also grew up playing sports. His passions were baseball and basketball, and he was the youngest child of three children. And there was 13 years separating my husband from his youngest, oldest sister. Did you catch all that? All right, so what you need to understand in that statement is that he was the only boy. He is John Leon Heckert the second. 
He is most important in his family because he is one of three and not one of 12. So, John also grew up in um, his church, very active, because his father was a deacon in the church, and he participated heavily in the everyday work of the church, along with his mother. Now, I met John because he was also a college basketball player, and he was assigned as my freshman orientation leader. You know, the person who takes you around campus to show you around and help you connect? I guess you can say he helped me connect to at least one person him. His work was good. Now, fast forward six years, and we are both working in our degree areas, and we've completed our master's, and John proposes. Our families are so ecstatic. They're excited for both of us. And since you're the 11 o'clock crowd, I know you'll be the most participatory in this next piece. I'm curious, now that you know a little bit about John and I, to know what you think of this next question. Raise your hand if you think John and I are going to be married in my church where all Flemings and Lowrys get married. Raise your hands. A few of you, thank you. Thank you for your support. Now raise your hand if you think we're gonna get married in John's church where his father is the deacon and he can perform the ceremony. Mm. Honey, some of them are on your side. All right. What you need to know is our family loved our wedding. It was the greatest of all celebrations because John and I got married in Las Vegas by an Elvis impersonator at the Graceland Wedding Chapel. Seriously, our families loved it. Here's a photo of our entire family um, joining us for a little Elvis pose. Such a formal event. Um, but I, I say this to you, and the reason I want you to know this is because lots of times we come with a bias in our mind. We, ha- we have this bias that a bride is going to get married in the bride's church. But what you didn't know that couldn't be confirmed by just what I shared with you is the fact that when I grew up after church on Sunday, I went to my grandparents' house, and every week that there was an Elvis movie on TV, I was watching it with my grandparents. And when there wasn't an Elvis movie on TV, I was jamming to my Elvis collection of records (laughs) thanks to my grandparents. Fun in Acapulco, it's a good one, go watch it. All right, you also need to know that John, when I met him, was sporting the most amazing Elvis-length sideburns. And he would sing to me Elvis songs. It was a match made in heaven. And guys, when he proposed, it was simple. It wasn't extreme. He simply said, hey, baby, let's go to Vegas and get married by the king. And I was all in. So what I want to share with you this morning is sometimes we take information and we gravitate towards what we believe or value. And other information comes and we reject it or we ignore it. Have you ever heard of confirmation bias? Confirmation bias has got this very formal definition I want to share with you. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs and values. Now, 
Our beliefs are often based on paying attention to the information that lifts us up. It upholds us. While at the same time, we tend to ignore information that challenges us. For example, I'm just using our wedding as one. I want you to imagine a person holds a belief that people who are married in the church have healthier and happier marriages. And every time this person meets somebody and asks this couple, where were you married? Oh, a church. How long have you been married? 10, 15, 25 plus years. Their value for marriage is confirmed by this person. Now, let's say that person met me. Where were you married? The Graceland Wedding Chapel. I'm ignoring you now. And it doesn't matter whether I've been married 26 plus years and that it's healthy and happy, I think. Right, honey? He's over there, just so you know. Um, they would discount this information. And that we all have biases, guys. We all have them. Our biases can be anything from political to educational to parenting to marriage. And even, as I see some of you, sports team affiliations. And because of the echo chambers that are inside our smartphone devices and our online content, we are constantly being fed with things that might uphold our beliefs and values, even when they're wrong. And we don't want to be challenged by them. The first century Jews were waiting for a Messiah, and they were expecting a Davidic king, a political ruler, a warrior who would shut down their oppression from Rome. They were believing that the Lion of Judah, or judge, was going to show up and put Jerusalem back in her place. They were expecting the prophet, the one who would come and tell their enemies that they had better watch out because God was coming for them. What they weren't expecting, though, is what we heard John the Baptist call Jesus when he saw him in our passage today. Did you catch it? The lamb. They were not prepared to see the lamb. And my question for us this morning is, are we? Do we see the lamb? In order to better understand our passage, we need to understand that John the writer is introducing us to a new John, John the Baptist. And you may recognize John the Baptist a little bit because we often hear his parents' story told during Advent season. Zachariah was a priest and his wife, a barren wife, Elizabeth, um, are often told at Christmas. And Zechariah had entered into the temple to perform his priestly duties when an angel of the Lord appeared to him and confirmed for him that God has heard your prayers, he's answered your prayers, and here are all the details. And we read this in Luke 1, verses 13 through 16. Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. He'll be great before the Lord. He will not drink strong wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the children of the Lord and Israel back to their God. He will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he will make for the Lord a people prepared. Now, immediately, if you're parents in this room, um, like myself, that's a lot of information to go on about your first child. They're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And this is confirmed for us in Luke 1.41 when it says, Mary, pregnant with Jesus, greets her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John, and the baby inside her womb leaped at Mary's voice in confirmation. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So now, if knowing that you're having a son, his name is John, and he's being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't enough, God goes beyond that and he tells them your son has a great plan and purpose and that is that John will be the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. Listen to these words in Luke 1, 15. He will turn the hearts of the children of Israel towards God and he will make a people prepared to meet the Lord. In the Bible, God uses kings and prophets and judges to turn his people back to him. But there was none as well known as the prophet Elijah. Elijah's name actually means the Lord my God. And he was the most adamant and passionate presenter of God's messages and warnings. He walked in ultimate obedience to God. He was listening constantly to God. He was receiving all his needs from God. Even food delivered to him by ravens in the wilderness. Elijah expected miracles from his God. And God rewarded Elijah by sending a horse-drawn chariot to take him up from heaven, to heaven. Now, it's important for you to hear that because Elijah's legacy continues to be a part of Jewish tradition today as they await Elijah to announce the Messiah. Even at modern-day Passover celebrations, a seat is still set for Elijah to be at the table in their waiting. And the angel saying that John will be filled with the power and the spirit of Elijah is very important to the witnessing that he is going to be doing on behalf of the Lord. Our reading begins, John the Baptist is in the wilderness outside of Bethany, witnessing to those who are following him. When suddenly this group of Jewish um, leaders have sent a group of priests and Levites to come and to ask John about his identity. I imagine this is like a press room that we see on the news where they're shouting their questions and John is responding to them. And what I love right off the bat, it says, he confirmed and did not deny. And this is important as we read John 1, 20. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he answered, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. John, in his humble posture, the first words of John's in all of scripture are simply, I point to Christ. I am not him. And I love the way he says, I am the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John affirms God's plans that had been told to him since the moment his father heard the news of his birth. I imagine he heard these words growing up again and again. John, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will turn many of the children of the Israel back to their Lord, their God. And you will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
John, the apostle's writing in this chapter, has felt a little like the start of an extreme roller coaster ride, where the first incline is super steep and intense, because he begins with the words, and the word became flesh. And then he says, the true light has come into the world to push out darkness. And now this ride just keeps chucking up, and we meet John the Baptist, who is witnessing and baptizing in the wilderness. It's as though John's entire life has been waiting in the longest Disney ride ever, and he's finally getting ready to board the car. God's plan has reached its peak, and the incredible arc of God's promise is about to be announced in John's next words beginning in John 29. Then one day he saw Jesus walking toward him and he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just picture with me for a moment. Everyone, we're gonna use our imaginations. John the Baptist is in the front seat of this amazing roller coaster ride. Yes, I picture him like this. Hands flung up in the air, shouting with exhilaration and hope for all to hear. Behold the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Honestly, though, it's hard to imagine what John the Baptist is feeling emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually in this moment. Since the day he was announced, he's had one purpose and one plan, Prepare the way of the Messiah. I imagine that he has a strong sense of relief. Maybe a wardrobe change is in his future. Maybe he'll introduce some new foods into his diet. Or perhaps he's going to take a job working in the city with the Messiah from nine to five. Regardless, it's with clear eyes and a full heart that John the Baptist makes this shocking announcement that the Messiah is here. His ultimate promise is present and walking among mankind. John is absolutely positive. But the Jews that he is witnessing to, they are not. He realizes almost immediately the people do not see the Lamb. They are not ready for a lamb. They are looking just past him, looking for a warrior, looking for that strong ruler, looking for that powerful prophet who will destroy their enemies and place them back where they belong. Because after centuries of being in exile as slaves to other nations and experiencing brutish and controlling barbaric leaders, the last thing these people want or are anticipating is a meek and lowly and humble lamb announced as their king. John's announcement is not the confirmation that they were seeking. Israel's minds and hearts are stubbornly set on only accepting someone who fits the picture in her mind. They want to behold a military leader, a political leader who will set their world straight. What they were waiting for, I assure you, is not what they got. They were not waiting for a lamb. No one was looking for a lamb. And to be honest, 
Neither are we. Our culture and world is so harsh and it is so destructive to our well-being that we also overlook this lowly and humble lamb and we want someone else to handle a domineering boss or a school bully or the abusive spouse or coworker. We underestimate the value of this lamb in our marriages and in our politics and in our homes. We are so quick to dismiss the lamb and the fact that we forget his power because he is the lamb. He is so much more. This lamb is the creating power of the word made flesh. This lamb is the true light that pushes out the darkness. This lamb is the sovereign authority of God. John's witness to behold the Lamb of God deserves so much more than our quick look or our quick glance. John calls us to know, to pay attention to all that the scripture has revealed. We need to see the Lamb. If we're going to take Jesus seriously, worship him rightly, obey him fully, and follow him completely, then we must accept and receive the lamb as the truth that Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. It does not mean, though, that Jesus isn't mighty or powerful or strong. He's indeed all those things perfectly. He's a humble might, a loving power, and a sacrificial strength. We are going to use the remainder of our time, though, focusing on John's statement in reverse, because that's fun. And we're going to discover together the truth of what the Lamb has come to do. I pray that our ears will be open and our hearts ready to receive the truth, because it may actually contradict some of your preconceived ideas of Jesus, his work, and most of all, why he came for us. So we look at the words of John the Baptist again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're used to a culture that gives us small sound bites as we daily get bits of truth drift into opinions and arguments. These either confirm or deny our beliefs. But I promise you this, John the Baptist held nothing back in this announcement. The truth of the statement declared that the lamb is not for a few or for the chosen. He came for the world. The Greek word here is cosmos. Sometimes it describes the physical world. Other times it describes humanity. And other times it refers specifically to brokenness and hostility within all creation against God. We will see the writer, John, the evangelist, specifically using the word the world to juxtapose the brokenness and the hostility of creation against God. And I want you to hear two very important truths about Jesus, the redeemer of the whole cosmos world. The first is this, Jesus had to come and redeem and rescue not just the covenant people of Israel, but all people. 
In Genesis 1, God called Abraham to be the father of all nations so that Israel might be a blessing. Israel was not instructed, I'm sorry, Israel was instructed and called to provide care, safety, and justice on behalf of the foreigner. This was not so that Israel would just have good deeds credited towards her name. This was so that a picture of what Jesus would come and do on behalf of the world could be seen. He would be a blessing to all people. We've already read this in chapter 1 of John. In verse 9 and 12, it says this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. The second truth of Jesus' mission for the world has to do with the physical world itself. In John 1.1, we hear the word became flesh. The sovereign power that formed physical creation and humanity has taken on human form and entered the world for ground-to-ground combat, battle that is required to redeem and restore. The broken, hostile, and rebellious behavior of the world, which includes souls and solar systems, broken hearts and broken neighborhoods, corrupt consciences and corrupt businesses, and polluted minds and polluted skies. Dr. Anthony Bradley of King's College in New York City um, summed up this frame of Jesus' mission in this way with a phrase that he uses, cosmic redemptive Christianity. And he says it like this, God's cosmic kingdom includes industry, technology, recreation, the arts, education, commerce, politics, and so on. And as a result, poverty matters to God. Gun violence matters to God. Racism matters to God. Divorce, child abuse, Genocide, sex trafficking, all of these matter to God. Issues of justice in society for Christians are issues of liberating the creation from the work of the devil. So, if you are thinking that the Lamb came to reclaim all things back to himself, then you may be overlooking the totality of this mission In Revelation 21, John sees Jesus seated on the throne and he proclaims, behold, I am making all things new. So if you're saying to yourself, he wouldn't want to rescue me. If you think he can't redeem the brokenness that you are trying to hide, then you're wrong. This is the truth. Jesus came for the entire world. But what has he come to do? The middle of John's announcement says he came to take away the sin. Now, Andrew's teaching last week addressed the true light is coming to destroy darkness, the junk that we don't want anyone to see, that we want to remain hidden from prying eyes. And I know I have those places I don't want the lamb to acknowledge I don't want him to see my sin because it represents the places in me that are still separated from God. My sin tarnishes the relationship that I should have with God. 
And we don't want to acknowledge sin because the truth of its identity in our lives is painful. Sin separates us from God. Our sin is a reminder that we have missed the mark, that we have broken a relationship that we were designed, designed to have with God. God did not fail. I have failed. We have failed. We have failed to love and honor God in the way that he deserves, and we've also done that to our neighbors. Whether intentional or not, we have taken advantage of others and situations. We have broken trust with others. We have sought to bring ourselves glory. We have let sin mar our thinking, redefining our bad decisions as good ones. We have not controlled our selfish urges, which hurt others. Sin not only separates us from God, but it makes us feel like gods. I love how St. Augustine defined this. He says, our core problem is that the human heart, ignoring God, turns in on itself. It tries to lift itself up. It wants to please itself, and it ends up debasing itself. As image bearers, we are designed and created to bring worship and praise, celebrating God's glory. The darkness, though, of sin leads us not only to hide, but to deny the truth that we need to accept the Lamb. 2 Corinthians 5.2 says, For he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lamb offers us hope, wholeness, and healing. Again, he takes away the sin of the world, There is no place where sin is so great that it is outside the reach of God's blessing and his grace. Be it generational, national, ethical, racial, or systemic. He has come to reclaim all things the lamb came to sacrifice for it all. Hear this truth and wrestle with it if you must. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And to deal with your sin and mine, he did not send a warrior or a lion. John begins with the words, Behold the Lamb of God. Are we ever really not surprised by God? He knows exactly what we need and when we need it. A warrior or a ruler might have been able to set the world straight because of strength and power. But a lamb? Imagine the early Jews had only wanted their desires to be confirmed. For centuries, they would have been thinking about and telling the story, passing it down from generation to generation, about how the Messiah's coming to rule. It's not hard then to understand how a lamb would barely attract a glance or a notice from them and not hold their attention. Perhaps they forgot the stories of how God used the lamb to rescue many firstborn sons. In Genesis 22, God called Abraham 
to build an altar and to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. When Isaac saw the altar, he asked his father, where is the lamb? And Abraham's response was, God will provide the lamb. Or the story of how God, using plagues to rescue his children from Egypt, told them to use the blood of a lamb, a perfect and spotless lamb, to spread that over their door so that death would pass over their homes and their firstborn sons would be rescued. The Lamb of God is not mere symbolism. It is a victorious title given to Jesus at the start of his public ministry as a way to show him to be the fulfillment of God's redemptive work from the beginning of time. So do you see the Lamb? Or do you behold the Lamb? The word behold is much more than just the modern day exclamation of, look, This word would be a poor, poor comparison to the biblical definition of the word behold. Because behold, by definition in the Bible, conveys a call to know, to pay attention, to understand. John and I were married three years before we became parents. Our journey would be painful, and it would be reflective of Zechariah and Elizabeth's. But when God answered our prayers, we were not looking for our features to be in our daughter. We were not looking at her face, imagining my dimples would be there or his brown eyes. When I looked at my daughter, I found God's face. And I prayed that over time, Caroline Gate. Uh, Caroline Grace would get to know him and that I, I would be able to help her by giving her the instruction and the wisdom that he had passed on to me. I found God in my daughter's face and I prayed that he would reveal so much more than I could see. And what I know from gazing upon her face is this, I am called to worship the Lamb. Behold calls us to worship and to recognize the truth. Jesus is the lamb. Behold calls us to a place of reverence and a proper view of Jesus and ourselves. John the Baptist knew this. And sadly, sadly, he saw the looks of all those around him who were not ready to hear the truth. And behold the lamb. I think he knew I think he knew they and we would look for someone else, something else. John the Baptist had one purpose, prepare the way, prepare the people for the Messiah. He was not focused on how the Messiah would appear. His concern was the minds and hearts of the people be ready for this Messiah, not their preconceived ideas of what they thought the Messiah would be or should be, but what the actual real Messiah was. Do you see the lamb? Are we beholding the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Or have we created some alternate version simply 
that confirms the ideas that we think about him already. A pseudo-Messiah based on our preferences, our politics, our version of justice. John the Baptist's words are call for action to our hearts and minds still today, to acknowledge that we are sinners and we are in need of a lamb to take away our sin. Maybe, maybe today you're sitting here and you're just willing to chance a look at the lamb. And if that's where you are today, I want to encourage you to read John 1 again. Ask God to help you to discover who he is and accept what he has come to do for you. Write down all the truths that you see about God in scripture and through prayer, ask him to let those take root in your heart. Engage with other believers in conversations and maybe soon enough, instead of just looking at the lamb, you'll begin to behold him. If you, though, are sitting here and you say, I am beholding the Lamb, then give him the worship that is due his name for the work that he has done in your life. Offer up praise for the work that Jesus has fulfilled in keeping all that was promised by the Father. Take time to notice where God's holy work is happening in and through and around you. Ask him to lead you to be a witness telling the truth of the lamb. Whether we are seekers or followers, our desire is to behold the mysteries of the lamb by turning our eyes on him and letting everything else in this world grow strangely dim so that the world no longer has a hold on us so that the chains of our sins are broken forever and we might stand in the same throne room as angels and sing the words that are written in Revelations 5, verses 12 through 13. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Whether we are just beginning to look or whether we're beholding the lamb, I want us to take a moment to remember and reflect on the work of John the Baptist on behalf of others. John's purpose was to prepare people to be ready for a Messiah. Our E90 initiative does the same thing. We're asking you to pray for nine names that they might know and see the Lamb. Maybe you don't have nine names yet. I invite you, when we get ready to use this next 90 seconds, to just pray and ask God to give you the names of nine people. Or perhaps you're sitting here and you're not ready to name any names because your name is the top name and you just need to seek the lamb yourself. I invite you to seek him. Ask him to give you eyes to see him and ears to hear him and to invite him into your life. Let's use these next 90 seconds to pray.
Father, thank you for your lamb, for a loving sacrifice that rescued all people and restores all things. Amen.